Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is a really good friend of mine and a really good friend of the podcast i think he's our first guest ever and i'm really really happy to have him back if you're not familiar with him, Josh Newell is a producer, engineer, mixer, and really all things audio related. And he's got a massive back catalog of clients. He's always working on something incredible from Linkin Park to Avril Lavigne to Intronaut to Cynic. Josh has been a part of some of the biggest records and catalog editions in the modern musical landscape. And in addition to his stellar history of work in audio on the music production side. Josh has also recently begun working with public broadcasting titan NPR, pushing his already formidable engineering knowledge and resume to new heights. He's an example of what it means to be a professional audio engineer, and I love that he makes it work no matter what is happening in the world or in his life. He's a very inspiring person and a good friend. I introduce you, Josh Newell. Josh Newell, welcome back to the URM podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. How are you? I'm pretty good, all things considered. I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while. Has been a minute, hasn't it? Yeah, I feel like I haven't talked to you at all during COVID. Yeah, we haven't chatted at our, our usual rate in a while, now that you mention it. No, so I want to hear about what's been up, because I, uh, I know that you have the NPR gig, and uh, that probably kept you busy as hell in 2020. Oh, you say that like anything's been going on in the news lately. <laughs> I mean, we'll get into it because obviously like um, my music career changed a little bit. Man, last time we talked, I think was, it's been about four years since we did this. So we had just finished recording that last Linkin Park record. So I mean, we can get to that in a minute. But yeah, my, my kind of main gig right now is uh, engineering for NPR, not a member station, but the, like the whole national organization. They have a, a Los Angeles office. And I had been freelancing there for a bit since I think 2018 and then late 2019 they were uh, like hey we have a position would this be of interest and I was like yeah maybe I'll maybe I'll take this and try this and it it's really I gotta be honest it worked out great as far as having employment during uh, a pandemic because um, we had to close we had to close our studio uh, the right house that I had going and we were reopening it but um, yeah it, it's kind of worked out really well as far as having a gig 
where I don't need to be around a ton of people. Yeah, being around a ton of people is super stressful. Yeah, very. It isn't for me now just because I've got antibodies, but uh, I don't think that I would be able to do a job that required being around a lot of people if I didn't have some immunity. Not to burst your bubble, but we just, uh, you know, that new variant that's out. There's like some new versions of COVID now because it's uh, it's mutated. And uh, we just did a report on this town in Brazil that had, basically, if herd immunity was going to work, this town was going to be the proof of it because it was so widespread originally. And now there's a new variant going through and like people who've been sick are getting sick again. So Awesome. Yeah, so maybe just avoid Brazil, even if you've got your antibodies. Yeah, well... Damn it, because I was going to go there. <laughs> I had a trip planned. That being the case, isn't travel kind of restricted? They're not super strict about it. And I, I mean, they've said in LA, if you leave Southern California right now, you're supposed to quarantine for 10 days before doing anything. So like if you leave, man, I think even if I go to San Diego, I'd have to do it. Not that I'm going to San Diego, but um, yeah, there's supposed to be like a 10 day quarantine just coming in and out of California at this point because LA's numbers are so high. It's something like at this point, they think one in three people in LA have had coronavirus. Wow. That's insanity. That has probably worked out for you great in terms of having a ton to work on and also being able to separate from people. Yeah, it's been good. I mean, the company, I guess the thing with being a news organization and you're, I mean, we've been, we started covering it back when it was still just kind of in China and popping up in December. Um, and then they moved everybody to work from home and they were getting everybody laptops and, um, they're just like, oh, we're not sure how we're going to support everybody working at home. And NPR's main DAW actually isn't Pro Tools. It's something they've been kind of adding that's new, which has been another reason that's worked out for me because I know Pro Tools, obviously. So like, we're not even sure how we're going to support Pro Tools. And I was like, well, my work from home setup is an HD rig. So uh, <laughs> like, I'm good to go. I like, got all these coworkers like, oh, it's so miserable working from home. And I'm like, I've got a whole room with an ergonomic chair and speakers. Like, this is great. Like, I'm not commuting across LA every day now. This is wonderful. Uh, do most of them just have like weird little laptop setups? Yeah, and, and I have one too because I have to work on in their DAW as well. But uh, yeah, I you know I I work with I work with people that work for NPR for man one of the guys who worked there longer than I've been alive. So they're just like, why would I have a home Pro Tools setup if I'm here every day? Fair enough. So how did that come about? A friend of mine from recording school actually is, and I was his teaching assistant at one point, is actually the head of audio technology at NPR. He's been there since 2000. So NPR has always kind of been on my radar as a gig, if ever need be, if I ever got sick of music. I think it was about seven years ago now. I think it was after Hunting Party wrapped up. He called me, you know their, their thing, Tiny Desk, the, like the Tiny Desk concerts they do? Yes. So he called me and he was like, hey, the engineer that's doing that's retiring. He's like, would this be of interest to you at all? I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool gig. You know, and if, if you're not familiar with Tiny Desk, you can just YouTube it. They basically have everybody from Taylor Swift and like Run the Jewels to... The Black Crows, they have a ton of people come in and basically perform at NPR. So he's like, oh, if you want to, would you be interested? So I, I basically, I interviewed for that job. I got really close to getting that job and ended up going to the guy that was like kind of their fill-in guy, which is understandable. That at least put me on NPR's radar. Um, so that job's kind of been there over the years. And then, you know, but I was still, it was always like, hey man, music's going really, really well. Like, should I ever <laughs> get older, have a family, decide I want to do music, maybe I'll call you. You know, fast forward to 2017 and um, I think it was actually about the last time we talked. I was taking about six months off because he just spent a year and a half straight making a Linkin Park record. And I was like, I'm going to take six months off. We had my first, I, well, my only kid. <laughs> my kid was born about two weeks after we finished that record. So I was like, you know, I'm going to take... First of one. Yeah, first of one. My first slash last kid. Uh, I was like, I'm going to take six months off. Like, I want to be home. And I just wanted to be around and supportive. Like, my father-in-law had passed away while I was doing that record. Like, I just felt like I needed to be around. And on top of that, Lincoln had written so many songs during that album that they're like, hey, we're going to come back in the fall and just start our next record. Because they're all family dudes. 
And they were like, you know, we don't want to tour for a year and a half. Like, and they were also kind of like adapting to the new music model. Like, hey, let's put out more content more frequently. I'm not do an album and then tour for two years. So it's kind of one of those things like, okay, great, 2017, I'll take six-ish months off. Like, I'll work on some stuff. But yeah, like, I just want to be home. And then, you know, about six months after that record wrapped is when Chester passed away. And Chester passing away, especially how he did, kind of turned into this whole, like, uh, I want to reevaluate my life and reevaluate my career in the regards that, uh, you know, I started caring more about my mental health. How so? Like, I'm not going to say, like, you know, Chester and I weren't buddies. He was somebody, it was, I've known those guys for long enough. Like, it's, it's kind of like a coworker situation. Like, I don't know everything. I don't know the details of his private life a ton. I probably know more than a lot of people just from being around, but. Yeah, but you knew each other a long time. Yeah, I think Ethan, who's Lincoln's other engineer, kind of worded it like, oh, man, there were weeks I spent more time with that guy than I did my wife, just by byproduct of working, you know? Yeah. So you take this guy that's, I mean, really successful in his field. I think Chester had six kids. He's a lot of kids. And he really loved his kids. Like, he used to talk about his kids a lot. And it was kind of one of those things, like, I knew depression didn't mean, like, you're bummed out. Depression's, like, a real mental disorder. You know, your, your brain's... It's an actual illness. Exactly. But I didn't know, I didn't know a ton about it. And so I started doing some looking into that. It's an illness with a body count, too. Yeah, very much so. And it's... Yeah. I mean, it's not one of those things where I ever sat around. And I don't. I don't think any of us sat around and like kicked ourselves at like, how did we not see this coming? Because I, th- I think for a lot of people, you, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of musicians who've had a lot of demons. It's just because a, a lot of musicians do. Like, there's just something about that type. So I don't think for a lot of us that it was, oh, I could never picture Chester doing this, and in the, in the scope of knowing him for since 2002 or whatever. But it was just it felt like odd timing for it. So it was one of those things where like, oh, this guy that's like successful in his field and doing what he loves and he has a family and like he felt overwhelmed. I mean, I've, I've always had some anxiety issues and I was like, well, I just want to get this addressed, especially having a kid and then not to minimize Chester's death, but also when Chester passed away, like that was my main source of employment. Like I worked with Linkin Park for a long time. The shortest we've ever worked on an album was like six to nine months. So we're talking about like a band that eats up a lot of, a lot of bandwidth as far as employment goes for me. So I'm at a point now where I've just had a kid, which is you know stressful, and this person I know and care about has passed away, which is stressful. And then, kind of my main employment is gone. I think we talked last time. I think we were on. I think I, I mentioned the fact that like, man, I do this. I spend so much time with Lincoln that it really is hard to build uh, relationships with a lot of other yeah. People. We we did talk about that. Like I you know I had to turn down I think two records while doing Lincoln because I was they're like oh when will you be done with this and it's just like oh. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> a year from Next now? year, maybe? Yeah. There was kind of a lot of that, and I, w- I was just like, you know what, I'm going to go I'm gonna go talk to somebody. Like, I'm going to go see a therapist and make sure my head's in a good space. I think this industry, it's really easy to slip into a toxic lifestyle, I guess. It's stressful. You work a lot. When you freelance, like, you know, I've had gigs come and go. Like, I, at one point, I was working with Puff Daddy, and they, um, it was a last-minute gig that came up, and it was supposed to be going a long time, and I didn't have anything. It was kind of good that it came through, and then, they just decided they didn't want to pay me as much as they were supposed to. Meanwhile, they were like upping my work and my hours. And I was like, no, you guys got to keep paying me what you said. And they were just like, all right, you're fired. And I was like, just four months of work. <laughs> four months of work just goes away. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that like shit on Puff Daddy, like things happen, but. That's the music industry. Back when um, I started URM, there's multiple reasons for why I started. There's not ever just one reason for why you quit a career cold turkey. But uh, one of the things that, really, really bothered me was the getting paid super late by labels and not being able to say anything about it. Because if you say something about it, they're just not going to work with you next time. 
Until you have a lot of leverage. But if you don't have leverage, they can pay you six months after the record is released. And if, if you rock the boat, they'll just go with somebody else. End of story. I actually have an outstanding invoice right now from an artist I was mixing last time we talked. <laughs> I mean, and that's actually a Christian rock record, which is one of those ones like, you would think you would be honest about paying. They're always the craziest yeah, so on I've tour. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so just a lot of that piled up. I just kind of like started reassessing some things. Like I actually just listened to your Josh Wilbur episode not too long ago. And him talking about working at studios was just kind of reminding me of that. Like, oh yeah, like I remember cleaning toilets and doing all that. And studios being like, oh, you... You want to take a vacation and go see your family? Like, well, I don't know. What if a gig comes through and it's three months and then if you're not there for a week, you can't take it and you're going to lose out on three months of work. And you never take vacations. Like, you never shut off. You're always working. You're always hustling because you want to get ahead, which is good, but it can be it can be toxic and, like, the hours are weird. and Sedentary lifestyle. Very much so, yeah. Like, I'm trying to burn off 20 years of sitting around. But, and also, like, I started, like, I didn't have a drinking problem and I still drink alcohol, but it was one of those things, like, oh man, it's, you know, it's midnight on a Tuesday. I've been at work for 12 hours. I just want to unwind. Like, what do you do at midnight on a Tuesday? Like, I have a friend that's a bartender. I'd go see her. It wasn't like I'd go get drunk, but like, go have a beer, see my friend unwind because you, you know, you need that unwind. So it's just like, you know, like I didn't have substance abuse problems, but the industry can lead to people having substance abuse problems. It can happen gradually. Kind of like any unhealthy lifestyle choice. It doesn't seem too bad at the beginning, especially when you're younger, but a certain work environments just promote bad behavior. I definitely think production is one of them. I think the music industry as a whole is pretty toxic. If you just let it play out the way it normally plays out without you know, taking control of your own life, uh, it can be pretty toxic. The touring lifestyle, the studio lifestyle, uh, it can be pretty, pretty hazardous to your health, I think. And again, it's not something you might notice right away. But over time, it definitely builds up. Yeah, and it's, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, like, it is, it is a dream to get to a level where you're, um, you're doing records at these multi-million dollar facilities and, you know, you, the, the track you're working on is going to Chris, Lord Algae or something like that. Um, but when you're at that level, you are also, unless you're the producer, you're, and even, even if you are the producer, you're kind of at, I don't say the whim of the artist, but to, the, to a degree, artists of that level have crazy schedules and there's a lot of I mean I'll go back to that Puff Daddy gig. Puff Daddy has a whole lot of stuff going on that's not music and and that's really where he makes his his money. So yeah, you're at the studio at noon, but he might not show up until 7 p.m. because there's all these other obligations that have been booked with him. And then you work till you know, you work with him and then you have to finish at like four in the morning. And like it just I mean I, I think I'm just kind of circling that this can be a toxic job. And all of this said by the way, I haven't quit doing music. But it was more like I want to reassess my relationship with music and especially having a kid too. Like I wanted to be around my friend, Ethan, that was doing Lincoln. His kid was a year and a half older than mine. So, you know, for him, there were days he would be frustrated because not, not about the job for any particular reason, other than like he was having a really good morning with his kid and he wanted to be around more and he knew he was going to be at the studio till 1am. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to figure out like a balance of all that, trying to figure out what I was going to do without Lincoln being around because kind of around that point too, I had accepted the fact that and it wasn't like twisting my arm on this, but it's like, all right, Lincoln's always going to be my big client. It's going to be somewhat prohibitive for me working with a lot of other big artists just because I'm going to be with them so much. You, you just like embrace it. Like, okay, I'm one of Lincoln Parks engineers. Like, what is there to complain about? Like, yeah, we, exactly. We beer for a year and we had food budgets. I mean, we were eating like nice sushi three days a week and like, oh, here's all, 
here's your Waves Mercury bundle because you work with Lincoln and here's your UAD stuff. And hey, we want to be able to mix on your edit rig. Well, my edit rig's not fast enough. Like, well, here's an HDX card so that we can do that. Like, I am not complaining about my time with Lincoln Park. They were very generous. It's still a decision you make. When you say yes to one thing, I think the more significant the yes is, the more uh, significant the no is going to be to everything else or to lots of other things. And I just don't think that you can have, you can't have a main gig without the other gigs becoming side gigs. It's just a decision you make. Exactly. I mean, it was a big part of why I've never opened my own studio in LA until we had Riot House. I was like, why would I do that? I, <laughs> out of every three years, two of them are spent in the other studio with Lincoln Park. Like, why would I open my own studio? Makes sense. This is all a very roundabout way of explaining how I got to NPR now I think about it. So basically what happened was uh, I have now been thrust into, not, I, mean, I don't say thrust into freelancing because that's what I was already doing, but just that's gone away. So now I'm kind of, not so much cold calling, but you know, you know people and like, hey, Matt Squire, haven't talked in a bit. Like, what are you up to? Do you need some help? Or, hey, Josh Wilbur, like, you know, I did, I helped him with some setting up some mixes and stuff. I know, I know a lot of people through NRG. Hey, Jay Rustin, if there's anything you're not mixing, send it my way. Like, it was a lot of, just start filling in the gaps. But at the same time, I also got thinking like, oh, there's got to be other stuff out there to do, especially like having a family. Like, there's probably cool audio jobs if you, with benefits, like, you know, I don't know the guy well, but the guy that works at Red Bull Studios is their staff engineer or, um, you know, knowing people that do video games or I have friends that, I have a friend with two Grammys who mixes commercials for ABC and he's totally stoked on it because it gives him a bunch of time to go rock climbing. So it's like, all right, I'm gonna start putting feelers out into these other things. So I started, I started doing that. Like I started, uh, I have some friends at a post place and I started mixing Netflix cartoons in Korean. Um, it was just like, hey, this is the overdub <laughs> in Korean. Like, can you mix this and send it back at spec? Like, yeah, I can do that. Or I have a friend that, um, you know that artist, you know Poppy? The Oh, yeah, yeah. So at one point, she was going to have a YouTube TV series, and I have a friend who's a producer, and he hired one of my friends to, uh, who does post to mix it, and they're like, oh, do you want to do the Foley? So I started doing Foley sessions. And it was just like, I want to like, learn all this other audio stuff I'm not used to doing, on top of still doing music gigs. Like, and then my friend at NPR in D.C., uh, obviously, like Chester passing away was kind of big news. So he was like, hey, we have some engineering positions open in D.C. Are you interested? And the first one popped up probably about the last time I talked to you. And I was like, man, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to like try to interview for a job in D.C. while having a kid. Like I'm not moving cross country. And then another one popped up like a month later. And he's like, dude, these never come up. And I was like, yeah, I, st I still can't take that. Like I'm not going to move with a one month old. I was kind of doing my thing. And then one day he calls. He's like, hey, you know what? The West Coast office we have a temp fill-in person that covers when like, people go on vacation and whatnot. And he's like, I feel like we should just do better. He's like, so, you know, this wasn't him throwing me a job. He's like, but, you know, let me put you in touch with the guy out there, the head manager. So he did. I went and met the manager. This guy really wanted you at NPR, didn't he? Well, I mean, by this point, he's head of the department, too. So I think he kind of liked the idea of having engineers that he knows. Yeah, it makes sense. But also, we've been friends for 20 years, and I think he was trying to, like, he's like, hey, I know you have a kid. I know what happened with Lincoln. So I take it back. A job did pop up at NPR like a year, when my kid was a year old. And I was like, all right, well, I'll at least interview. And so the interview with that company is gnarly. Like I did take an hour long audio proficiency test where it's just like everything from audio over IP, which I didn't know a lot about at the time, to conversion rates and specificities of DAW and then stereo miking techniques and collapsing things to mono. Like it was a pretty serious test. So I took that. I didn't get the job in DC, which I'm fine with. And then, then, then afterwards... Because I did my interview with other managers there. Like my friend wasn't like, my friend's very professional. He's like, I'm not going to do biased. He's like, I, but so they were like, well, hey, LA office, the temp guy's not that great. 
maybe you'd be a fit there. So I went and met the manager there, got in, um, and just started temping and just did well. Hit it off with people, you know, hit it off with staff. A new manager came in who really liked me and they started assigning me more and more gigs. So I started doing like fly dates, like, oh, hey, go to Seattle and the How I Built This Podcast is recording a live event. So go coordinate the audio setup and the recording of that. And it just kind of like snowballed into this thing where they started giving me more and more work. They made me part-time. And then finally they're like, hey, we're going to create a position for you. So, and then, yeah, so that's why I took it. So I basically ended up like NPR initially started as like, oh, this is another another thing in my freelancing wheelhouse that I'm trying to build of doing things other than music just to just to do things other than music. Yeah. And yeah, and then it turned into a, a thing, so. So two things that I think are interesting here. Number one is... Uh, that kind of is another example of when I tell people that the market's not as saturated as you think it is because most people suck. And if you don't suck and you're pretty good, you're already going to stand out. It just makes me think that they already had that position filled. Even if it was a temp position, they already had somebody. If that person hadn't sucked, there would have never been the chance for you to do a better job. But most people suck. And so if you're good at what you do, I think in audio or music or whatever creative, you probably have a pretty good chance of getting work just because most people don't have their shit together, aren't reliable. Yeah, like telling people to just like say yes and do things generally is good advice. Um, unless you're completely out of your league and then you're going to completely fuck up your, your future chances of doing something. I had never done broadcast ever, but... I could go like, oh, I've mixed these children's cartoons to a broadcast spec. Like, I've done this before. Like, you kind of need to show, and, and this is an important thing for anybody, even if you're just like trying to reach out for just freelancing with your favorite producer, you need to show that you have applicable skills. Like, you can't just send out like a blanket email or a blanket resume. You need to, and that was part of my, my goal with that whole, like, I'm going to work on a bunch of stuff that's not music, was that I wanted to spread, I wanted to spread my chances out of like finding something cool. Like I interviewed at Bungie Games at one point to do Pro Tools and music editing. And they sent me a video game cut screen and a bunch of music and sound effects. And they were like, we want you to build the score for the scene out of the, the, here's some of the music and then here's sound effects and you need to mix it. Well, I'm not a big video game guy, but it was a, like a space battle. Well, I love the shit out of Star Wars. Like I know what a space battle sounds like. <laughs> so like mixing the space battle and doing the cuts like I think John Williams would, you know what I mean? And it was one of those things like, oh, or even I, like I, I went in with a, a, a company that interviewed with a company that does uh, movie trailers. Strangely enough, I interviewed with a guy that I graduated college with who we had never met. We just, same school, same year. But it was, oh, the big part of this gig is mix prep. Well, shit, I know mix prep. <laughs> you know, they're just like, can you give an example of knowing mix prep? I was like, well, yeah, I worked for Jay Baumgartner at this place for nine years and part of your gig was setting up his mixes. So, you know, it's, um, I, I know I've done this other thing where I mix these cartoons to broadcast back. Like it was really good to like start. And, and the, the thing with Bungie was they were like, oh, this is pretty good, but you don't have any game experience. But also like, I mean, I'll be honest with a lot of you people and I don't, LA is one of these markets and it's probably a lot of places. But like there are a lot of bad audio engineers out there that claim they know what they're doing because they went to some quick program. And even if you can pull out a discography like I can, like not to brag about it, you're still convincing like, a, you know, a video game company that like you've worked on, you know, they're selling millions and millions of, you know, copies of their video games at this point are probably like the number one entertainment company. I mean, especially with movies being where they're at right now. Yeah. So they want, they want proof that you can deliver on a deadline and that you're going to show up. So that's there's tens of millions of dollars on the line. Exactly. So that was part of me in, in what I was doing too, was just like, oh, I want to prove that like companies can rely on me as well as like specific examples. That's exactly my point though, is most people suck 
and people know it. So if you can prove that you don't, you'll probably be okay. Exactly. And I mean, so yeah, basically like if people ask you to do things, don't say yes if you legitimately can't do it, but if you if you can, like get in there and do it well. I mean, my whole career is kind of relied on this point of, I'm sure it goes for a lot of people, like knowing people and then just being remembered as being reliable. Where did all these gigs come from? Was it all from contacts? Some of it was cold calling, like the bungee one I randomly found, but then I have a friend. Oh yeah, you said that. Where were you looking? I think I just started looking for audio jobs around Los Angeles. I just decided to start. You know, the the the, the company doing, when I was doing the, the commercials for Netflix, that was through Post House, that um, one of my good friends, like an old roommate, he used to work there. So I kind of knew some of the people there, but he put in a word for me. Um, you know, the Foley gigs and the, the doing the thing for Poppy. My friend that was the producer, I... I mean, he's an old friend, but I also like recorded his band a couple times. So he knew that I didn't, like he knew I didn't suck. The bungee thing, that was kind of a cold call. But even then I reached out to a friend of mine whose husband does video game programming. And he was like, oh man, the head of hiring at Bungie is like an old college friend of mine. Like, yeah, but hold on. NPR too. That was one of those ones, like I kind of knew somebody. So honestly, the movie trailer one was from uh, the bass player for A Perfect Circle. I worked with his other band. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, I don't know if this is of interest, but some dude that I grew up with and used to play guitar with, like, they're looking for somebody at their their trailer mixing house. Sounds like your network saved you. Yeah, it really did. And that was then that was without even having to go like, hey guys, I'm really in trouble here. <laughs> it was it was really nice. It was a lot of people reaching out like, hey, are you okay with what happened to Chester? And then, um, kind of as a as a, a secondary like, if you find yourself needing work, like, let us know. We'll help you out. That's great. Yeah. No, it was it was it was really good. Pays to not be an asshole. <laughs> or at least, like, if you're an asshole, being an endearing one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So did you find that the therapy helped you basically collect your thoughts so that you could get through what could have been an overwhelming time period as healthy as possible? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I and I still, like, I still talk to a, a therapist. Um, I still I think, think everybody good. should. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're ever on the fence about it, and the guy I found was through a local organization that just like, takes graduate students. So you're you're talking to a graduate student, but they're under a, a licensed therapist. Um, and my therapist has since gotten his license, and he's great. It really it really helped me like kind of prioritize. It really I mean it just really helped me prioritize my own like health and well being and kind of get being a workaholic in check. And then I got to be honest with you, working for a news organization the last couple of years has been. Stressful, <laughs> to say the least. So that's been good too. For people listening in the future, it's uh, January of 2021. Right, right. And we, I mean, we don't need to get into politics. Everybody doesn't have to agree with my my take. And NPR is a very uh, neutral radio station. But like, there was one day we were testing. You know, there's machines that record uh, all the broadcasts and then they auto loop them. So, um, so member stations across different time zones can pick up the show, and then we can punch in if there are updates. Like, say, mm-hmm. there's breaking news at 9 a.m. Well, by the time it's, you know, 9, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, it's noon in D.C., and there might be updates. So there's basically a device that records it, and then we can punch in. Um, and they're like, we're going to test it. And it happened to be the day, like, the recordings of the kids being caged. Like, audio came out of those kids in cages, and they're, like, crying. And, like, and they're just like, this is the day we need you to just constantly listen to everything on loop. So you're just listening to little kids crying all day. And at the time, like, I had a two-year-old. Like, I don't know, man. It, I, it would suck for everybody. But, like, um, yeah. yeah, so... Unless you're a psychopath. So basically, like, long story, it was good that I was still seeing a therapist dealing with this. <laughs> it sounds to me like the news in and of itself, if it stresses out the public this much, it must really, really stress out the people working on it. Yeah, and the company's been good about that. But 
it's weird because like I really miss music and there are days I really miss music. And again, I haven't stopped doing music. I've done a bunch of cool shit lately. Like I just had a Converge song I worked on came out. That's awesome. Yeah. Kurt Ballou being like, hey, can you record Ben? He lives in LA now. I'm like, yeah. But the thing I like about working at NPR is if, if I'm doing something like, like when I got into music and I ended up at NRG, I was like, well, I want to work here because even if I wasn't like the biggest fan of new metal, when I started there, like, and you walk in, you're like, oh shit, this is everything that's on rock radio right now has been done here. This is where I want to be. Like, this is, this is like top tier rock music right now. This is where I want to work. Like I want to do, I want to do top shelf work. And so for me working for NPR, it's like, oh, this is like, if I'm going to do broadcast right now, like I want to do top shelf work. It's like, you're doing a piece that's going on morning edition and then 20 million people are hearing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Or for me, it's cool. My parents can actually listen to my work now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like there was a day like, oh, here's the satellite phone. You're going to go to interview the ambassador from Iran and you go and it's supposed to be going live. So like you've got this like little satellite box that you're dialing in and, oh, well, he's running late. All right, we're going to scramble and redo the show. Finally get him on for an interview to get out of there. Like, oh, I wonder why he was late. It's like, oh, I re- remember that day like Iran, who's Iran? Iran Iraq bombed like a... A military base? Yeah, back last January, I believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I was waiting for him. To, like, he was talking to the president <laughs> because that had happened, and that's why he was running late to my meeting. And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, this is what these people are dealing with. It's, like, stressful in a different way, but it's really cool because it's a challenge that, you know, it's it's a big deal. Like, you know, don't, don't F this up. Like, I had to go to Robert Downey Jr.'s house, like, and do an interview with him at his house. And you're just like, okay, don't mess this up. <laughs> what was that like? Honestly, Ron, it, it was awesome. He had his own on-site, like their whole compound, they had their own on-site tech guy to make sure that like I had satellite signal or ethernet. He was really nice. He was like the exact guy that you would think he would be. But it's still- It's a big deal. You know, you meet celebrities, you meet celebrities, but like that, that dude is a celebrity, you know. Or hey, here's Willem Dafoe, here's Christopher Nolan's coming into NPR to talk about whatever, you know. Here's Spike Lee coming in to talk about his first Oscar- you know, we talk about Black Klansmen. Like, I like that if I'm working in broadcast, like, I'm not at some, uh, and this isn't to be dismissive of anyone's doing it. Like, I'm not at some local college station. Like, I'm in a, like, a very legit company. And I think, I think if I decided I wanted to do live sound, like, I wouldn't want to work at a local bar. Like, I'd want to, you know, I'd want to be at a national venue. So whatever it is you're doing, you want to make sure that it's legit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, because I feel like uh, that doesn't sound like a step down at all. Sounds like just a step I mean, that's kind of how I view it. And I'm, yeah. And like I said, I'm still, I'm still doing music work and it's for the sake of where I'm at, I get to be a little pickier about it too. Like I can kind of pick what I want to do now instead of going, you know, especially in the, in the first year or two of Lincoln being gone. And I I basically was like kind of having to rebuild a clientele base there because I had been gone for so long that like you're not keeping up. So, you know, the kid and rent's expensive in LA, there was projects I was taking on that I really wouldn't want to do. And now I don't have to do that. I can take time off to do an intronaut record or something like that if it's something I really want to work on. But yeah, I don't know. Like I just feel I'm in a good space. I don't know if I'm gonna do broadcast forever, but for right now, it's really good. And I've ended up feeling like way more stoked on it than I than I thought I would. You know, it's become really clear to me for a while now that a pathway to a comfortable and good living in audio doesn't have to come exclusively from working in music. And there's numerous ways to make it work with the right skill set, broad enough of a skill set. Do you feel like um, engineers that want to do the band thing, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that, but do you think that uh, overall they limit themselves from the possibilities? 
Yeah, I think they do. And I'll be honest, like I did that to myself too. Um, when I was in recording school, my recording school offered classes in post-production and other things. And I was like, I just want to do music, man. I don't care about this other stuff, which was a, a, a bad move. When I started doing music in LA, I was taking a lot of stuff. Like I, And the thing that worked well for me is I somehow ended up the hip hop guy at, uh, at NRG. I think it was because I interned with, uh, the guy I interned with when I moved to LA was one of Death Rose engineers. So uh, by NRG standards, they're like, oh, this is definitely our hip hop guy. So it was kind of cool at NRG to, I started realizing like I liked that a lot. And part of my initial enjoyment of engineering was getting to work on different different things. So I did start trying to look for a bunch of different types of music. Uh, oh, th- this is a reggae thing. This is a jazz thing. Like, okay, great. Like, I want to jump on that. I want to learn that. For me, the thing with, I, I lurk the URM, the Nail the Mix Facebook group more than I comment. And this is not to deter anyone's goals, but I think people like Joey are, and you guys have mentioned this, like Joey's an outlier. Like Joey having a career starting in a, in a garage is not, is not really the norm. Although I don't know what the norm is in the industry anymore because the norm is different than when I started. Starting in the middle of nowhere and getting famous, producing exactly. bands and starting a whole scene, that's not normal. Yeah, it's way more possible now than it was when I was in Tennessee in 1997 or whatever. But Yeah, but it's still not normal. There's nothing normal about it. Right. So, like, yeah, get good at something, get get known for being good at something that that's good, but don't be like, this is the only thing I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to be honest, a lot of you guys, like, if you're just like, I'm only going to do extreme metal, like, that's awesome, but it's, it is kind of limiting. Like, there's only so much by way of budget with a lot of those bands. There are already, there are already guys out there, you know, like Sukov, who, like, everyone goes to him. Like, he's known, like, you're, you're trying to crack into, trying to crack into audio in general is a hard scene. And I think, honestly, I think everybody's should, goal should really be, if you can make a living, and this was kind of my goal when I, when I really thought about it, was like, if you can make a living, I mean, at the time doing music, but I'd extend it to you. Like, if you can make a living doing something in audio you like, you have made it. The sheer number of people that I know that came to LA to like make it in the music industry that didn't, you know, like Eric Ron was a, uh, an intern at NRG at one point. I mean, he's killing it, but we probably had... 70, 80, probably 100 plus interns in the years that I worked there. And like the number that have gone on to really do things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like Eric, uh, my friend uh, Kyle, who engineers for Nine Inch Nails now. But there's like, you know, I can I can literally count on one hand the number of interns I know that have really gone the distance. So as far as like massive, massive careers. But there are a lot of people like just doing other things. Like you just need to understand like, this is a really tough business you're trying to break into, especially now. I mean, especially now with coronavirus, don't make it harder on yourself. Like if this, if you were driving a race car right now, like don't spray paint the whole window black and then just put like one little circle for you to see through while you're driving. (laughs) Well, the thing is that a lot of people have the wrong goal. And I think their goal is to become a famous producer, like, like the next Will Putney or something like that. When that's just statistically very unlikely. However, making a living which is not as sexy, but uh, just making a really good living as a musician or an engineer while it's still difficult, it's not unrealistic. Lots of people do that. But it's the element of wanting to be a star that really fucks people up, I think. They go for the wrong things. Yeah, agreed. For me, one of the things too is I I realize the type of music that I really enjoy recording and doing is not going to be financially rewarding enough for me to live in Los Angeles and provide for my family the way I would want to. Because I like, like, I just mixed an EP of like nine minute, like stoner prog music. And like, I love that shit. I love the Melvins and stuff like that. Like, you're just not, you can't make a living being like the guy doing 
doing that stuff. Like he just realistically can't. So, but I get to do it when I can do it. And that makes me really, really happy. And then I don't know, like, I feel like I'm in a good place with what I'm doing with music right now in relation to everything else. And that Chester passing away thing was probably, it's, it's definitely up there in the list of like turning points in my life slash career, just by way of like it, it completely changing my mindset about life in general and audio in general. Was well, a pretty major event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a huge upheaval to lose somebody you care about and kind of lose your, not your living, but. Yeah, you know what's interesting to me is a lot of people would have just uh, stopped and gone back to the real world. I think it's interesting that all you did was figure out how to use your skills and your network to uh, keep going rather than just quit. Though, what would you do if you just quit? I have, yeah, I have no clue because I, I have a bachelor's degree in recording. Like, I, I really yeah, have the, never done, I've not done anything else other than I sold t-shirts at Hard Rock Cafe when I first moved to LA as a part-time job. Yeah, that's the only other thing I've experienced in. So it had to be this. Yeah, it basically had to be this. That makes sense. I just think that uh, everybody's going to go through something fucked at some point in time to varying degrees, but uh, it's just kind of a fact of life that it's going to happen. The question usually to me is, uh, what do you do after? Do you go to therapy and figure out how to pick up the pieces and use what you've already got or not? And I know a lot of people who would pick or not and uh, just develop a drinking habit or go away, quit, quit on their dream or anything like that. I just think it's interesting that you were cool to redefine what it meant to uh, be a professional audio engineer and you're still killing it. Yeah, no, I feel I feel very fortunate that I landed on my feet. I gotta be honest, that first year was rough. I mean, fortunately, I'd worked so much leading up to it, but, because yeah, like I said, that first year, I was just like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of take this six months off and I, I mixed some stuff and I had some one-offs. Even having a summer off, Lincoln does a bunch of live stuff and Ethan and I like helped mix that and put it out. So I, I, I literally was like, well, I'm not gonna look for something in 2017 because one, I want this time off, two, I know there's like summer work with Lincoln that'll be fine that I'm going to do at home. And then three, like we're going back to the studio. So I'm not going to try to build up some relationships. And then just be like, hey, I'm disappearing again for a year. So that year I felt, that year very much felt like getting caught with your pants down. But it, it was good in the like, all right, man, like you you got to get up and do something. Like there wasn't, there wasn't time to wallow because it was just like you already have burned through like the six months grace period that you would have had. Otherwise, yeah, it was good. It was good, like kind of forcing myself to get back out there and do different things. Did you just start calling people? Is that just what it is? One day you're just like, all right, I'm starting. You just start calling people? It was a little bit that, and I actually was about to start calling people around the time Chester had passed away. Because at that point, it had been about six months since we had finished the album. And I was like, well, maybe I should find a few more things to like kind of fill in the gaps. And then I felt awkward trying to call people. <laughs> like, it felt awkward trying to call people the, the first month after he passed away. Because you don't want to be like, we had a lot of guest producers come through while doing Lincoln, like LP from Run the Jewels. We had been in touch with him, like a whole, like a whole ton of people. And you just feel weird, like, uh, hey, if you ever need any help, I, this is totally not related to my my friend passing away. Um, but yeah, like it was a little bit of both. Like I started kind of calling and reaching out to people, people I knew at management companies and stuff. Like I don't, I don't have management, but I, I know some people that work at management companies. And then, I, and you know, fortunately for me, like I had people that I know that started reaching out too. I've worked in LA now for 20 years. Like I know a lot of people. So there were people that just, hey man, are you okay? If you need something, if you need work. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And yeah, and, and then it just turned to like scouring the internet for like music editor needed or anything, you know? 
So how did it lead back to the current NPR job? You had the temp job, and then they just upgraded it to a permanent position? Kind of. I had the temp job, and then the manager, they changed managers around the same time that I really started working there. So the new manager, the new manager just really liked me. I had like zero connection to the guy. He wasn't the guy that hired me, but he was like, oh, you're, you're good. And one of the things that really worked out for me at NPR-wise was... Like I said, there are a lot of people that have been working there for a long time. So they, they started like cutting news on tape and all this stuff. So NPR has its own proprietary DAW. Like even if you know a DAW, you can't come in and work at NPR and be good at their DAW because it's completely custom. It was one of the first DAWs that did offline bounce. Somebody can be recording in an interview and you can on another computer access that audio file and start mixing it while it's still recording. Like it's crazy. <laughs> It's built exactly for what they need it for, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. They need something where if there's a breaking story and it's around 10 seconds, they can do it. So what worked for me was I was coming into an environment where the thing with working on DAWs is even if you don't know a DAW, as long as you know your way around a DAW, you can kind of get around another one. Like, I don't really know logic, but I've had gigs where I've had to use logic and I can kind of figure out logic. And all this said, like, it, everybody learn learn your DAWs. <laughs> um, I'm as guilty as anyone, like, I'm only really good at one DAW, but... I think if you're only going to be good at one, be good at Pro Tools. And you guys can argue about that in the the comment threads all you want. But if you have any interest in doing post, you better know Pro Tools. And every radio station I've, member station I've dealt with or other podcast I've dealt with through NPR has been Pro Tools. Um, And I'll get to that in a second. But basically I could come in and like, I know digital audio work and I know digital editing really well because that's a lot of what I did with Lincoln was digital editing. So it was a really good skill set to come in with. And then... Just know your signal flow and it'll get to you through a whole lot of gigs. And then also just know how to deal with difficult people. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it turned into like, I started picking up these things. I started, I started picking the brains of people that were doing well at the company. One of the guys was like, hey, you know what? I found if I, if I asked for stuff, they would just give me stuff, like volunteer yourself. So I started doing that and they started giving me more work. And then it got made into like, hey, we're going to give you at least enough hours that you're kind of around every week instead of just being like, oh, you're on for two days and then you're gone for two weeks. Like you've made mm-hmm. yourself valuable enough that we are going to at least create this part-time position for you. Because it got to a point where there were newscasters and producers are like, oh, we want like we want to work with Josh. Like, I, you know, I started getting a gig like recording the podcast every week, the in-house one. And they're, they're just like, because we like Josh, we want to work with him. So yeah, so like that's kind of how it led up. And then the other thing for me was, NPR started to bring in outside podcast producers who are using Pro Tools. Well, I had a couple of people that are somewhat Pro Tools proficient, but if I'm if I'm allowed to brag on myself, like I'm really Pro Tools proficient, and it was really good to be like, oh no, we have a guy that can like talk you through troubleshoot you through this on the phone, and you know that's really worked out in my favor. Like I just did a I just did like a big podcast for them, this music podcast about hip hop and incarceration, where it was a three-month thing and hour-plus-long episodes, and they were, like, crazy complicated, like, 80 tracks. And it was just like, oh, we have Josh. He can do this. I've carved out, like, my area of work there, too, I guess. And that's very similar to getting hired in a music studio, too. Yeah, make yourself valuable. <laughs> yeah, that's the the same kind of stuff that moves you from intern to engineer. Sounds like what you did here. And just make yourself useful, make yourself valuable, make their lives easier. And like magic, suddenly they want you there more. Yeah, and, and be confident about it and ask about these things. Like the, a friend of mine from uh, NRG days, who I still talk to because his wife's my wife's best friend. I remember back in the day, like, he was our top runner and then a session came through mixing and it was just helping the owner mix, like Jay Baumgartner. So yeah, Jay's doing big clients, but it's also Jay, like we all know Jay. So that was the session they would like really break you in on. And they're like, this guy's name's Dave. And they're like, Dave, 
Jay's going to need somebody. Like, are you comfortable doing this? And Dave is a very hard worker, but he's also a really honest person. And he was just like, I don't know. I might have some shortcomings. And this seems like a big client. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to ask somebody else. <laughs> and they asked one, of the other, asked one of the other runners. And he was like, yep, I'll do it. And he didn't know more than Dave. He didn't know less than Dave. He was just like, this isn't to insult Dave, but he was just smart enough to be like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And he did. And he got like yeah. a six-month leg up on Dave as far as assisting. And Dave was like, never again. Like, I'm never, never again. He learned. He's like, I'm not going to publicly doubt myself on whether I can do this or not. He's like, that was a huge fuck up. I'm not going to talk myself out of a gig. Yeah, especially because he was totally good enough to do it. <laughs> Just get in there and do it. It's interesting. How do you determine when you can do it and when you're out of your depth? Because earlier we were talking about not taking something on that's out of your depth so you don't make yourself look like shit and then never get hired. How do you tell the difference? Right. And I, well, for me, I, I was navigating an NPR in the regards that the thing that worked for me, because I'm, I'm going with NPR because it was like the most obvious example of, hey, I have not done broadcast and you guys have millions of listeners and I want to make sure I'm not fucking things up. <laughs> yeah. For me, that was a good job because at least it was, like I said, they have a custom DAW that there's no way you've ever used before. They have a whole lot of stuff that there's no way you've ever used it before. So you, you can't be expected to know it. They know there's a learning curve. Yeah. But I think the best way to prepare for stuff like that, or even, I'm actually, I'm going to go back to NRG because I think it'd be a better example, especially since we're on a music podcast. So when I started working at NRG, I'd never used a Neve console before. They had two old Neves, but I knew signal flow. So you can figure it out. And they had an SSL 9000J uh, I'd never used that, but I've been on a 4,000 G. But what I did was figure out who's good at what and then just ask them. I found so many so many situations where like if you ask somebody that really knows what they're doing, they're going to be happy to show you. The assistant that was Jay's mix assistant, this is back when you you print mixes to half inch and you'd be splicing in half inch tape and you know printing mixes through the SSL and then you would do a vocal 5 D, or 0.5 dB up, a vocal point, you know, a 1 dB up. Like just just go in and start volunteering to do that. Like, hey, can I can I help you with that? Can I watch? And then, then it would work your way up to like, oh, we'll, we'll let you splice in. Like, we'll split, let you splice tape now. We know that you're not going to mess this up. Or the assistant would be like, man, I really have to go to the bathroom. Can you print this version? And, and with the Neves, like I had a band at the time. I asked one of the assistants, I was like, hey, will you record my band? Not because not I was trying to get a free demo out of it, although that helped. But I'm going to help you do this because I want to learn from start to finish kind of how records get made here. Like, you know, this the first time working in a studio that has like all these vintage Neumanns and all these other crazy mics and pull techs and all this other stuff that you're just like, oh, I've always read about this, but I don't really know how it works. And same thing with the Neve, like you learn like, oh, where's the insert point? Is this pre or post EQ? And the other thing with old Neves is they're all customized. So what you can do in those situations is like find someone that knows it and then like learn learn enough that you're kind of comfortable with it. Um, and again, at the time, I mean, you guys now are providing a service where people can do a lot of that. Like, I would have loved it if I had like access to John Douglas's like this is how you edit drums. But what I had was the guy that engineered for Jay Baumgartner literally explained to me and one of the other runners how to do it. We hand wrote up a sheet of paper while he was talking to us, and then we photocopied it and handed it out to the other runners. Like, hey, this is how Dan engineers drums or edits drums. I mean, that's how I learned to edit drums. I got sent to Morris Sound and. Uh... Jim Morris sat there with me for a day and just showed me how to use Beat Detective and how to edit. And I wrote everything down and that's how I learned. Yeah, I, I think I still have notebooks full of notes and like, this is how you do. I, I know I have a notebook like, this is how we print mixes at NRG and this is like the order you go through. And actually one of the first like assisting not the owner of the studio gigs I did, it was like a live corn mix. Like their engineer was just mixing a song. And we're on the 9000J and there's a weird thing with SSL 9000Js. Like you can kind of get your rough mix going 
And then you turn on the automation and sometimes it'll just zero the faders because it doesn't see any automation. Is it just a quirk? Yeah. There's a thing on SSLs called a snapshot. So you can take a picture of where everything is. So it was just somebody told me like religiously hit that snapshot button. Like if you're if your project has like 900 snapshots, just great. Just write down which one's important. Like, you know, snapshot 37 is the important one. Um, so I do that. We turn on the automation to mix and the entire mix just zeroes out. <laughs> and this is like my first real assisting thing. I was like, oh no. Oh, no. it's like six hours in. And the engineer turns and looks at me and he goes, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. I'm gonna get a cup of coffee. I would really appreciate it if you could fix this. <laughs> he's like, if you can't fix this, I'm not gonna be this cool when I come back in. I was like, all right. <laughs> I found the snapshot and pulled it back up. But that was one of those cases where I was like, oh, I really hope I know about as much about this as I think I do that I agreed to take it. But yeah, I think now, I think now a good way to learn that stuff is, I mean, there's just the online resources. There's you guys, you know, I, I've done stuff like, how do I do this in Isotope maybe? You can YouTube that stuff or LinkedIn. Like, I'm not saying all online, this is definitely not me slamming you guys, but like all online recording content is not valid. No, it definitely isn't. So be picky and choosy about it. No, it's not all created equal. That's for sure. Exactly. Like learn that stuff via watching other people do it. And then, then you kind of have to do it. Like you just can't watch a bunch of videos on how to do drum edits. You have to sit down and really do drum editing, find some shitty drummer and record it real basically like kick snare and some overheads and maybe a far room mic just so you get used to dealing with compensating for that reverb delay time. And then just, just chop that. I mean, I used to do demo sessions and I would just edit the hell out of them to practice editing. See, that's where I think URM students go wrong the most is not taking that step of making it real world for them. The ones who do tend to be the ones who do real well with what we provide and then going on to have some sort of career. But the vast majority of the ones who actually say they're serious, like, you know, most aren't serious, but out of the ones who do say they're serious, only a small amount go on to actually do anything. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes they're making is uh, not applying that stuff to the real world. So trying to take in all the info rather than less info, but actually learning how to do the thing that they're learning about and then a little more info and learning how to actually do that thing and then a little more. Instead of that, they'll just like binge a bunch of videos, think they know mixing or engineering and then really don't and never really get that much better or take a really long time to get a lot better. I think the actually doing it in real life part is crucial. You have to do that. Very much so. I mean, I think we talked at nauseum about I've had a, some bad assistants, but uh, I remember one time, for whatever reason, Lincoln decided to let, like, let's let the assistant try this. Um, I think because we were kind of like trying to convince him, like, hey, we're going to ask for a new assistant. Like, we know you're comfortable with this guy, but he's not good. I'm like, well, let's, let's put him in the hot seat and see how he does on, on relatively low stress. It wasn't like, let's capture a main vocal. It was like, Let's get to this keyboard overdub or something like this. And he just choked. He choked in the hot seat, which part of me was sympathetic about because being put in the hot seat is a little unnerving. But, you know, because he was like, oh, I'm Pro Tools certified. That doesn't make you good at it, you know? And he was just, yeah, he was, he was just choking. He was underprepared. And it was like, oh, you've kind of know what you're supposed to be doing, but you've not done this in a position where like you have to make it work now. And that's, and, and that's important. Like you need to know how to make it work now. And, I mean, the other thing, I mean, the thing that I guess kind of worked for me as far as situations on getting to, as the assistant, do more important things on sessions. At the time, like, oh, you you work, at least you work at NRG. Like, you obviously are at least good enough that they let you assist here. So that helps. And, you know, that's not really, 
there's not really that equalizer anymore. Like you can't, you can be really good at mixing or editing or whatever you do out of your home. But I mean, it's, I guess it's like what I was saying when I was trying to work for all these other companies, like, oh, I want to do this Netflix thing and have that on my resumes. Like you do kind of need to have some, some proof that you're, you're reliable in a, like a given situation. And, and NRG would at least give you that, that leg up. Like, oh, he's, he's made it through the, the bullshit here. Just bullshit as far as like, you've made it through cleaning toilets and <laughs> fetching food orders. A lot of it's on you to know when you're good enough or not. And if I may critique some of the stuff I've seen on the, the message boards, where it's a lot of like, oh, well, I got, I got this recording and it's this. And people are like, well, you tell them they have to re-record it. I got this recording and it sucks situation. Yeah, you know what? You should also, by, by all means, like tell them to re-record it if, if you are in a position where you can do that. But maybe afterwards, like sit down and try to make that recording sound good. Because I got news for you. Like, no matter what, like you may make it to some amazing high echelon, but you, that doesn't mean like you're ever going to be in the, the power position to make people re-record things. Like, I've had to build words for pop stars before on their doubles because we only had an hour and a half to do these vocals, got to get the leads, and then she's got to go to her perfume launch or whatever. And yeah, you can make the argument like, oh, this is, you're, you're a singer, this should be important to you. But it's also like, she's not you know this pop artist is this is she's actually a business and you know what licensing her perfume line is as important as like working on the new album legitimately and so just get in there and make this work and you're like okay that shit happens it's an interesting thing because on the one hand as a producer you want to tell people to do something again if it's not good enough and maintain high standards and there's definitely been times where like pre-melodyne fixing guitars you get sent some guitars on a mix that are so out of tune that there's nothing you can do about that. Now you could maybe tune it a little with some artifacts, but uh, and there's Evertune. There's no excuse for shit to be out of tune now. But there was literally nothing you could do. So it's either I'm going to mix this with out-of-tune guitars and do my best, or I'm going to see if they're willing to retract the guitars and give me some in-tune guitars. But either way... It's getting done. Um, may as well ask. But I think that uh, a lot of people don't even try to see if something's salvageable. They like to make people do things again for some sort of a flex, some sort of a weird power play. It like strokes their ego. Like, I'm finally in a position, like a real producer, a real mixer, where I can tell these guys to do something again. When in reality, you really don't want to be in that position. And then the other problem with that is if they did it wrong one time, What's to say they're going to do it right the second time if you make them do it again? Oh, absolutely. I've made people redo things I was mixing. I was like, oh, this is just going to be a consistent thing with you. Like, I'm, we're just going to move forward. Yeah, this is what you're dealing with. <laughs> but it, it also, I mean, it behooves you to learn how to mix with stuff like that. This was something that was good about coming up in a big studio and working with a lot of different really talented engineers is you learn there's a whole lot of different approaches to get like the end product. You know, if you're you're doing metal, it doesn't have to be a ding wall. Like you can, you know, for a good a good base. Like it doesn't you don't have to use a 5150 to get good heavy guitars. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of like weird things you can do. But also and, and again I'm just focusing on this metal stuff because I know it's kind of a metal metal podcast. Metal production at this point is kind of pop production in a lot of regards. Yes. With the degree of perfection, the degree of virtual instruments. It's like electronic music almost. Yeah, and it's and it's something that I've been kind of having to learn. Like I've been mixing this project where like, oh man, I'm going to have to replace all these drums. All these guitars are bad. I'm going to have to use uh, the DIs through like the neural DSP stuff. So for me, like I'm learning how to do that because I got spoiled coming up in these nice studios with session musicians and shit where you're, 
you're just like, oh, this is, you know, I've got you. I recorded Phil X, Chris Cheney, and uh, Kenny Arnoff playing. Like, do you know how easy that is? Like, as long as the mics are in phase and pointed at the sound source, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. So I've been learning, I've been learning how to use like virtual instruments personally, but if you're doing a lot of that, and I mean, a lot of you are going to be doing that because it's a lot of, if I don't say this to be dismissive, like bedroom production, like you're forced to do that, but learning to re- record real acoustic instruments is a whole nother thing. And there's a whole lot of ways to do it. And it really is to your best interest to learn a whole lot of different ways to do it. Like don't, don't be in that mindset of like, I only put a 421 on a bass amp this exact way. Like there's a lot of different ways to do it. So I, I guess this is really just like kind of getting left field on that whole, be prepared to know how to do things uh, when presented with it. But this is, I guess, just be open-minded to learning a whole lot of different ways to do things as well. Like, don't don't think that you've learned drum editing just because you have one good way of drum editing. Like, be perpetually on the lookout for more tips. Well, this kind of speaks to preset culture, preset and template culture. So there's a time and a place for both of those things. You know, there's there's a time and a place for templates. Like, for instance, having your routing set, you know, your buses, that makes a lot of sense. Saves time, especially if uh, you're working on something that's very, very similar to something that you work on all the time. Presets, like there's a time and place for when a certain preset on an effect or whatever just makes sense. Like you know what it does and that's what you want and you can recall it and that's great. But the problem with people who just rely on those and don't actually learn how to do it from scratch, get fucked the moment that they get something to work on that doesn't work with that preset or that template. Anything that's slightly off the beaten path is going to send them into a tailspin. They won't know what to do. And by slightly off the beaten path, I mean just a little bit different. Yeah, I, I mean, mixing isn't my primary, it's becoming more of my primary source of work, but it wasn't my thing for a while. And like, have a starting template for sure. Like, don't, don't act like you have to do it for fresh from scratch. But like, if your template isn't working, don't be mad that the tracks aren't fitting your template. Just like start adjusting what you're doing. It's, I mean, it's audio engineering for God's sake. Like use your ears and start <laughs> start making something work. Well, problem is I think that people really want things to be yes or no, on or off, and have a real hard time with nuance and gray areas. And audio is a giant gray area when figuring out what's going to work. Because like you said, there's a million different ways to do something. And I bet a bunch of them will sound good, but uh, the question is, does it sound right? And actually figuring that out can be really, really confusing for people because they don't trust themselves or their ears aren't that developed. And so their comfort zone becomes this template. Like it worked that time, why can't it just work again? This preset, it's worked 10 times, it should work an 11th time, right? And I've actually seen some really good mixers and producers go down that path and then get stale. So it's it's not just students. Yeah. And I, and I guess the other weird thing about audio is like, it is to a degree, it's a subjective field too. Um, what you think sounds good or might not be somebody else's cup of tea. Everybody has like their different favorite mixers. Like I know me personally, like I love people like Andy Wallace or Alan Mulder or Jay Rustin where it's these like, I really like those really, really natural sounding mixes. Like that's that's the personal aesthetic I like. Um, I don't necessarily, um, and I just want to clarify as I'm saying this, this is not me saying it's bad, but like maybe the way Joey or Nolly mix stuff, like that's not, 
that's not where I would personally go. That's like not my natural inclination, but I think they're really good at what they do. And I think those are good mixes as well. And I'm only bringing all of this up as just saying like, that's not bad. And it's not me talking shit. Like, I think they're really good at what they do. I just naturally maybe gravitate toward this different style. And that's a completely valid point to have in audio. Like you can, it's it's no different than having an opinion of like, oh, well, I like country music. Oh, well, I like metalcore or, or you know what I mean? Like, I think that's what makes it complicated is, is because it is so subjective. And I think part of, I know for me with mixing, part of me was like trying to figure out what my mixing style was going to be because I really liked that. Like Andy Wallace was just like, I, I mean, I'm sure part of it's age too. But Andy Wallace was just like, and still is to me, like he's a mixing, you know, that's how I think mixes should sound. Like, you know, never mind drop when I was 12. It was, and I lived in a town of 1,200 people in Tennessee. It was like one of the first really heavy hard rock things I heard besides Guns N' Roses. Yeah, he, he's, he's a god. Like that implants or Metallica's Black Album. This is a good example. I, have, I listened to that the other day for the first time in a long time. Like I tried to play records for my kid and I was like, oh, we've never listened to the Black Album. And just listening to it, I was like, holy shit. Realizing how much that had implanted in my brain is to like, this is what things are supposed to sound like in a recording. <laughs> um, and I think that's part of my, my like inclination toward that more natural sound. And I think, so for me, like the hard thing with mixing is like, and basically this happens, I think for everybody is like kind of figuring out how you take all the influences and what you like about different people and like how you make that, how you make that your thing too. Like, you know, when Killswitch Engage's End of Heartache came out, was it End of Heartache or the... Is that the one with Alive or Just Breathing? I don't know. The first big Kill Switch record, the one before Howard Jones. Like, I remember when that came out, just because, you know, early, mid-2000s, like, that turned into, and I'm sure it's the same thing like when the Black Album came out, like, that turned into the record that everybody was chasing. Yes. Versus everybody. And you can hear it in records from those times. Like, you can hear everybody trying to figure out how to incorporate what they were. You can hear everyone going like, this is amazing how I'm going to incorporate this into my mixing style. And it was like the next five to 10 years were spent heavy metal mixing like kind of moved in that direction and everyone had to figure out like how to incorporate that and in what they were doing. Um, so I think, I think that's an important thing in like figuring out your templates and all your mixing stuff is like figure out who your inspirations are, but figure out why that's your inspiration and then figure out how to fit that into what you realistically are doing as well. Hey everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes 
everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Being that it's so subjective, do you think that, in part, mixers and producers get hired for their tastes? Like, and whatever that natural inclination that they have is just lucky or unlucky? Just lucky that Nolly and Joey are inclined in that way that they are? I think it's a little bit of both. I think mixers should get hired for their their taste, and then I think artists should let them. (laughs) Or just remember that that's why they've hired people. For God's sake, like stop telling them about the sound on your demo. You've hired a professional. And I've heard people like Jay complain about this. So it makes me feel <laughs> makes me feel a little better. <laughs> I think somebody like Josh Wilbur would be a great example of this. Like Josh Wilbur works really, really hard. Um, I've I've worked with Josh just a couple times. He's awesome. But I also think Josh has an amazing natural gift for what he's doing. Obviously, like that story he told where Andy Wallace is like walking by, like, oh man, you did this? This sounds really good. I mean, holy shit, but so I think it's a combination. Like there's a lot of hard work, but there are people that have a, a natural inclination towards it. So I think you're doing both. You're hiring people for their expertise and for their taste. Yeah. Then do you think that you can develop the taste part? I think so, yeah. But I think you need to be, I think you need to be a conscious student of both. All right, it's like playing instruments. Like I don't really, I know you don't play guitar a whole lot anymore. I don't play bass a whole lot anymore. I think that I did, and maybe maybe you feel this way about playing your instrument, I think I did have a natural inclination for playing an instrument. Yes. But I met people that were way more naturally inclined. Yes, that too. There's a bit of both. And like, if you can hit a sweet spot, but as far as developing taste, I think the best thing you can do to develop taste is to try to listen to a wide, a wide assortment of music and recordings in general. Like one of my brothers, my youngest brother-in-law, like loves metalcore, loves deathcore. And he thinks it's hilarious that I love Meshuggah because he thinks Meshuggah is boring. Um, and to me, I'm just like, I don't think you understand music. He's not like a musician. I'm like, I don't think you understand music enough to understand why you should appreciate Meshuggah to the degree that you should. You know, that last record was like, oh, this is just all them actually playing. Or you listen to like Clockworks or something and just like the footwork, the, the, you know, I, I don't have to explain Meshuggah to you. I think with anything music related or creative related. Yeah, it's... Aliens music. You have to, um, this was definitely the case with me playing instruments, even going back to like learning clarinet in middle school. It's almost like you have to get good enough to a degree to understand how not good you are and what you need to learn. Like as as an audio engineer, you get better and then your ear gets refined and you kind of have this like, <laughs> you have this this phase where you're just like, well, am I any good? Because I'm, and now I'm listening to all these other things, like picking up all this nuance that they're doing. And it's just because your ear is getting better. So you're starting to become you're, it's becoming more discernible and you're starting, you, you, that's you starting to develop taste. Like you're starting to hear things that you didn't hear before because you actually are getting better. And then by hearing more and more of the shortcomings, like that makes you better as well because like you're just able to get in on a more of a, on a micro level. That only happens through doing. Natural inclination plus a ton of action. You know, I actually think that people who 
maybe have a little less of a natural inclination towards something but take a ton of action can in lots of cases outpace people who have more natural inclination but take less action. However, you'll never beat someone that has both the highest natural inclination and the highest action taking. I consider Josh Wilbur to be one of those people, like high action, high natural inclination. They're kind of an unstoppable force. Yeah, absolutely. Josh is like that. Jay Rustin's like that. I mean, even going back to, you know, people like Joe Ciccarelli or Gagarth, if you look back early into their career, like they were just like cranking records out and working. But yeah, like, you know, I've known Jay and I have been friends for a long time. Jay has an amazing natural ear, but he also just like, he worked his ass off. So it's, it's like, it's a, it's a bit of both. Yeah, the hard work part almost always pays off unless you just have no talent and no social skills whatsoever. It almost always pays off. The natural talent part doesn't almost always pay off because oftentimes it comes with laziness or weird entitlement issues and stuff that just gets in the way of doing work. Straight up, just gets in the way of doing work. Yeah. Though, I will say, I have met a few people... This is more with musicians than engineers. A few people who don't need to work that hard, who are still better than everybody, but that's super rare. Have you ever met those types? Yeah, I would say that definitely that definitely happens more with musicians. Yeah, it's with musicians. It's not with producers or mixers, but I'm sure you've met that type. Yeah, and they're so frustrating from musician angle. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and I also know people that are amazing engineers, and you're just like, oh, you have absolute shit people skills. No wonder your career never went anywhere. Yeah. Where do you think it's more acceptable to have shit people skills on the musician side or the engineer side? Musician side as far as like actually being in a band or being like a hired musician, because either or. I think on the engineering side, personality actually might be a touch more important. But I, I would almost say that even varies from like producing to mixing. I think as a client, even if you get something that you like, but you have a bad taste about working with them, like you'd be you'd be prone to going to work with somebody else because you'd be like, "Well, this is great." But working with that guy or gal sucked. It was painful. Yeah, there are other good people. We could probably find someone, right? Versus like you find someone that you like working with and they they do good work. You know, maybe they're not the next Josh Wilbur or whatever, but they do really good work and you enjoy being around them and like the creative process feels good. Because I think that's a lot of it. I think, I mean, I think that's a ton of it. When musicians get attached to what they're, when musicians listen to like something they worked on, I think you can't completely detach the experience of making it from them listening to it. Like that's, that's intrinsically no. going to be tied into it. So from that angle. I know bands who made their most successful record with a producer and had a bad time and never went back, even though it was objectively their most successful record. It was a high point for them, but that's not enough. Like, yeah, I've heard of this several times, and I know lots of bands like this, where uh, they just won't go back, regardless of how well it does or how good it sounds, which was real eye-opening for me when I realized that that was often the case, actually. It's not that rare that bands won't go back if they have a bad time, regardless of what it sounds like. That's when I started to realize that actually this personality thing matters more than people may even realize because yeah, it matters for getting gigs, of course, because people need to be able to hang out with you. But it also matters past the gig if uh, people are even going to come back. And uh, in some ways that matters more than the audio um, because people come back, if the audio is not as good, but you're awesome, they'll come back more often than if the audio is great, but you're a fucking dickhead. Yeah, I think... <laughs> 
And I guess that kind of goes back to like making people redo things. Like be careful the way you're wording that stuff. I, I, I actually started picking up on the personality thing in college because, uh, you know, in recording school, we all, we, everybody had to do projects. You would have to find local bands to play on things. And then one of the things with college musicians is like trying to find proficient musicians or people with nice equipment. Yeah, good luck with that one. Yeah, I was a music minor at the time. So I was playing bass a lot. Like I could read music and I had some nice gear. So I, was, I started getting sessions on other people's projects because you kind of get known around the, the recording department. Like, oh, that dude that's in your engineering class, he actually is like a pretty good bass player too and has gear. Like you'd start getting that kind of kind of work. And so like really early on, I was experiencing what it was like to be a musician on these sessions working with people. And there were people that were, that were and it made me really conscious of when I was working with bands, like I want this to be fun for them. I want them to like working with me. I want them to be communicative. At the time, you know, it was, it was kind of at the time and then just the equipment that was available in the studio. Like if you're playing bass, you're actually out there with the amps. Like you'd be playing on something and then get done. And then you're just sitting there for like three or four minutes and no, you can see everyone in the control room talking and no one's talking to you. Like guys, the basic stuff like that, like don't do that to people. From the guards of, <clears throat> it, it just taught me like a lot about studio, studio etiquette and then and then working with people. Like it's really important. And their audio engineers are not always, I mean, it's kind of a different thing now because engineering, producing, mixing is all bleeding through more. But yeah, like you, you got to have some people skills. Like it's it's really important. Like, like I was just saying from the NPR stories, like people are like, oh, we like working with him. Like, is he available? And like, oh, the temp, you want the temp? Sure, like all of my coworkers, and this is not saying my coworkers are bad people. They'd also all been there forever. So I think there was a degree of comfort where I had a degree of enthusiasm, but it was like, yeah, it just, it, I mean, or even the Lincoln gig was important to be a good hang. You're gonna spend a year and a half with somebody in one room? Like you better be a good hang. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work otherwise, man. I think that also because audio skills are not as rare as they used to be. So there was a time period where just having a studio was unbelievable in and of itself. The further back you go, the more amazing it is to just even have a, a studio or a place to record. And being good at it already made you like a, like a unicorn, basically. So you could be a dick because where else would they go? And they probably spent so much money and were already so invested in it that... Uh, you know, it is what it is. They're not going to leave. Um, and there's very few options to go to besides you. But uh, that's not the case anymore. People can do it themselves or they can go to any of the other 27 dudes and girls. And so it pays to be cool to hang out with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I will even, <laughs> uh, without naming names, when we were doing that last Lincoln record, they were like, hey, let's try to make this like a pop record. So they were bringing in vocal coaches and vocal producers and those guys and gals would come in and do this stuff and you could tell like oh this person is really like they're they're kind of getting this job i mean a lot of them were really good at getting performances like oh this person's really kind of getting this job because they're a good vibe because ultimately all the tracks would go through me and ethan for cleanup and manipulation before going on to the mixer and you could sit down and be like oh man there's some ugly edits in here like oh I mean, I, I retuned some vocals for some very expensive professional pop people. And I guess I should add the caveat that Chester did have a hard voice to tune. Like tuning rock vocals is a completely different thing from tuning pop vocals because of that rasp, like you have to know how to deal with it. It was just like, oh, these people are good and top tier for what they're doing. Not necessarily from a technological standpoint, but from a people skills and the way the singer is feeling about the performance they're getting. Like that's why these people are being called in. So it's almost like that. I, I know Finn posted a bunch of that, that 
that meme of the guy standing in the corner at the party, like these people don't even know. Yeah. Like you could be that person before, like these people aren't even that good at auto tune. It's like you could look at it from that angle, or you could look at it from the angle of like look at it like, okay, why is this person getting hired? Oh, they like they made the singer feel the vibe and feel special and have like a really good experience. And that's why they love the performance. For example, that Linkin Park song, One More Light, like I don't know if you know that one, but it's no, it's kind of the one that got latched on to it was it was a song about someone passing away and, and then being missed. So in Chester's passing, it kind of became really synonymous with his death. And it's a really beautiful song. A fun fact about that song, I can't remember if it's 2 BPM faster than we recorded it at or if we pitched up half a step or if it's both. But we basically took this entire like lead-off single for the record and adjusted the timing and... I can't remember if we adjusted the tempo or the pitch or both. But we had to do the whole thing. And now that I'm, I'm telling people this, if you listen, you can kind of hear it. But they were like, we are not going to re-record this performance because we love this performance so much. So from a technical standpoint, us engineers and the vocal producer were all like, oh, you can kind of hear like the timbre in his voice is not his normal. I mean, it's not chipmunky. We definitely took our time and were very careful and listened to everything while we stretched it. But the song still works. And the reason it still works is because of the performance they got. And the reason they got that performance was Chester was so comfortable with that vocal coach and she was bringing that out in him. Um, so it was definitely one of those things like just the feeling he got from doing the performance with that person and just like their vibe was what was really important. And it ultimately comes through over this like, I guess what you could kind of call a technological shortcoming with the song. However, I wouldn't want to discount your role in it though, because part of what allowed him to be comfortable with that person, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, is having you and Ethan also to, as the safety net. They didn't have to hold some of those people to a super high technical standard because they already had you on the team. So they could bring in people that were just about the vibe. But if you guys weren't on the team and their vocal producer was not technically good, that might be a whole different situation. That's a valid point. And I guess it does speak to them as well that we were doing a project and they brought a couple albums ago and they brought Rick Rubin in to produce as, as we were working on it. And it's Rick. He could have very well been like, well, I want Andrew Sheps or whoever. And they were, it was like, hey, this is how we make things is we're comfortable with these people. So have a good vibe, kids. That's exactly my point. <laughs> I guess I, I honestly just never thought about it until you brought that up. And now it seems painfully obvious. Well, that is kind of why big bands have a producer and an engineer or two engineers um, is to make it a team and use everybody for what they're best at or what they're pro right for in that situation. But I just think smaller budgets obviously don't allow for that sort of thing. That's one of the beautiful things about big budgets is uh, you can let people just focus on, this is your job, just do that great. And this person, that's their job. They're going to do that great. And uh, it's going to be beautiful. However, I do think that producers coming up shouldn't listen to this and say, I'm going to fuck around. I don't need to learn how to edit because this person that did this huge record doesn't know how. Uh, <laughs> you should still try to get as good as possible. Yeah, again, outliers. And I mean, the lady, oh, why am I blanking on Emily's last name right now? Willis? Uh, the lady that did like the vocal coaching for One More Light, she was, um, like she worked with Max Martin. So she, like in telling that story, she was definitely not one of the ones that was like a shortcoming we had to retune. That was more one of those ones that was like, they trusted her performance and we had to, and then they were like, well, we trust you guys to take this up to BPM and not lose the vibe of everything. Yep. But like, also that person, like she was doing Max Martin. So like that lady like knew her shit. But yeah, so 
I don't want everyone to think that like all vocal coaches and vocal producers like don't know what they're doing either. I worked with engineers when I was an assistant where, because NRG was a very early adopter of like Pro Tools and then Pro Tools editing. Because like a lot of the stuff that came out of there, like you can kind of tell in hindsight. So we would have engineers through all the time that maybe weren't that great at, especially early on, that maybe weren't that great at Pro Tools editing. And you as an assistant would jump in and help just because they would go like, oh, you guys do a lot of that editing here, right? And you're like, yeah, like, would you, do you mind helping? And they were phenomenal engineers. Like, I, I guess that's the other thing. Just because you're a good editor doesn't mean you're a great engineer. Just because you know Pro Tools, Quick Keys doesn't mean you're a great engineer. Honestly, just because you know how to make one type of music doesn't necessarily make you the greatest engineer either. Like, there are guys out there like Joe Ciccarelli who can just like kill it on, across all kinds of genres or, you know, I mean, get good at things, but also kind of try to be, I guess, a little jack of all trades, guys, as you're, you're learning this stuff. Like being a metal producer may not be the thing forever. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Like try to be well-rounded. If you become a really awesome metal producer, top tier, you generally know how to do lots of different things too. That's the thing. Like these dudes that we talk about being the top tier, like Josh Wilbur, look how varied his career is. Like he's not just good at metal. Yeah. I mean, dude worked with Buster Rhymes. So, yeah. Jay worked with some big pop guys. And now he's like one of the other big, like hard rock metal dudes. Like, you know, all those guys. That's kind of my point is uh, every once in a while, I'll meet someone that's like all metal, only metal, nothing but. And then they get really awesome. And uh, it's just this very, very focused skill set. They're total outliers, man. And so one thing I think URM does that kind of poisons people's minds a little is makes people think that outliers are not outliers and are more the norm. And that's why I try to make a point of talking about it. Because, yeah, like, these are the people I have on the podcast. These are the people I have on Nail the Mix. Um, and they're in the community. So it seems like there's more of them than, they, than there actually are in the wider population of engineers. But that's because we're not featuring the wider population of engineers on Nail the Mix or in the podcast. It's easy to think that that's normal, that their stories are normal. But they're not. Those are the stories that we're featuring for a reason, because they're noteworthy. But that's not even close to the norm. The norm is that people work really, really hard, become very well-rounded, are super easy to hang out with, know how to do lots of different things, and then something works out that they can apply their skills to, and they go for it. Very, very few people just like master some oddball style in the middle of nowhere and then take over. That's just doesn't happen very much. Yeah, I, for me, one of my big producer-engineer idols is Brendan O'Brien. And that guy's done, that guy's done a ton of stuff. It, yes, he chili has. Peppers. He did the, did the Black Crows. Then you like listen to his Gaslight Anthem or he's done ACDC, he's done Bruce Springsteen, but he's also done Mastodon. Like that guy's done a lot of stuff. I mean, shit, even Bob Rock did a Michael Buble album. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I, those guys are great because they, there's like a larger tap thing. Like they're not, I mean, Bob Rock could have spent his, the rest of his life just making records that sounded like Dr. Feelgood in the Black Album. And I guess, granted, to agree, he did spend a lot of time making Metallica records. But yeah, Brendan O'Brien, like perfect example. Like, that dude worked on a ton of stuff. Or shit, look at Andy Wallace's career. Andy Wallace did Nirvana, but he also did Jeff Buckley. And then he did Slayer, but he's also, he also mixed Run DMC's Raising Hell. Like Andy Wallace is, a, I mean, well, you can talk about outliers, Andy Wallace, but um, Andy Wallace is a great example of like that dude just has taste and engineering skill and can make it work for a whole lot of different types of music. Yeah, question I have for you is 
you know, we've spent all this time telling people to be well-rounded. Where do you factor in genres and styles that someone legitimately just doesn't like? Should they learn them anyways? I think it can't hurt. And that's a good question because that kind of came up in my whole rethinking um, what I wanted out of engineering. Before I worked at NRG, I worked at a studio called The Enterprise, and it's not really there anymore. But Enterprise was where uh, Dave Pensato was mixing, and this would have been early 2000s, like Ashanti and Nelly were in a lot, Ja Rule. There was a lot of hip-hop stuff like that. And I ended up kind of like, basically like, yeah, I don't think this is, this is the fit for me. And it's not the, I didn't have anything against mainstream hip-hop. I was just like, I don't think I'd be happy doing this. And so it, it worked out for me. I went to NRG. But in kind of assessing what I wanted to do after Chester passed away, like, and, and this was part of also moving to broadcast too. And when I was discussing like, oh, I, now I can make the music I really want to make. It does, it's not even always necessarily genre dependent for me. It's more like the experience and the way they go about doing it. Like I've done pop stuff. I've done Avril and a lot of that. And um, I mean, part of me reassessing things was the guys I was doing those records with moved to Nashville and I wasn't quite ready to move back to Nashville yet. I picked up a last minute session at one point doing like a song for Jessie J, like recording some demo stuff for her. And it went okay, but I realized like, and, and I talked to some other people like, oh, you know, I have a friend at Warner Brothers and she was like, oh, I could get you in on a lot of these pop pop sessions. And for me, it was like, oh, I don't know if I want to, pop and hip hop. And for me, it was like, oh, I don't know that I want to do that. One, it's not the most relatable style for me as like a producer engineer. Like I don't mind doing it. A lot of that for me was the hours involved was why I didn't want to do it. I'm pretty open to most genres of music. That was part of why I quit playing in bands and stuck with engineering as well around the time. Like I was in that band in this moment and they were like, oh, we're going to go on tour and we had management and you could tell it was going to get signed. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I think I like, I think I like doing different types of music and I want to keep doing engineering. So I'm pretty open to that. Like That's just your personality. Yeah. Well, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I would never do country. Now I, I would fucking love to work with David Cobb and make Chris Stapleton records all day. And that's one of those things I, I, I did get to do. I made uh, Danny Worsnop's second country record. Like I worked on that. For me, it's like not even just entirely a genre thing. It's also, I guess knowing what working in those different genres entails. Like, I don't necessarily like doing super extreme metal all the time because I don't really necessarily like the experience of doing like super heavy, fast guitars and that like super intense, make sure everything's lined up and like, let's edit everything. I'm more of a like, fuck it, let's do it live. Like, I, I like the experience of like, let's record a bunch of session musicians or let's record something that way. So I think it is worth, if you don't relate to a genre, I think it's worth not trying to pursue it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think I would ever try to do, say, like trap or mumble rap because I don't really know anything about it and I don't relate to it. So while from a technical standpoint, I think I'd be fine with it, I don't think I would be the best fit creatively. I guess is more how I kind of view um, working on genres you, you do or you don't like. Like I'd be willing to work on genres of music that I don't necessarily like. I don't normally listen to a lot of pop country. I would be fine working on a pop country session knowing how that music gets made. Like, if that makes sense? Yeah, so it's got to be like almost within some sort of uh, reach of what you're cool with to some degree. Like, I guess there's just some things that are so far outside of that that uh, you just don't feel like you could do as good of a job. But I think part of that is because you have worked on so much stuff, um, you actually know what it's like to work in different genres. You know what it's like to work in genres that you're not comfortable in. You know what it's like to work in genres that you are comfortable in. You know the nuance of different types of genres, and you have the experience to say, maybe I'm not the person for that. But I don't think that at the beginning of your career, you know enough about yourself to to know that yet. You might be surprised. Yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> there were other reasons I quit that hip hop studio at the time. And it turned out like I ended up liking working on hip hop when I did. But I was working with people like Nas, which was like way more, way more of interest and way more of a working style for me. So I think, I think overall, a lot of it was just like, it'd be like uh, working in a kitchen, I guess. Like, I don't particularly like Italian food very much. Um, I don't dislike Italian food, uh, but I'm lactose intolerant. So like, I don't eat a lot of Italian food because there's a lot of dairy in it. But if I were a cook, I might enjoy making Italian food. Um, you know what I mean? So that's kind of how I look at it with like the music stuff. For me, a lot of it's just like the process of, of how it's being made and what we're going to be doing is of more interest to me. That makes sense. I mean, I fortunately worked at a, a big studio where you just assisted whoever came in. So you get kind of an exposure to a bunch of different kinds of music. You know, the reason I bring this stuff up is just because on Nail the Mix, we have so many students who, who only want to do certain sessions because they like it and they won't do other ones because they don't like it. And I think that that's super, super limiting. And then you have people who do all of them and they tend to get better. But uh, I think when you're learning, you shouldn't turn down any opportunity to get better. I, I 100% agree on that. Yeah. Like your reason for not doing pop or hip hop at this point in time comes from having known what it's like to do those and deciding maybe you're not at that point in your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm also an early 40s guy with a kid. Like doing that last intronaut record where we were like hitting crunch time and I was working those crazy hours again. I was like, oh, I am too old for this. <laughs> like, oh, I need more than five hours of sleep a night for two weeks. So yeah, I, that's I, that's some of the figure in for me. But early on, it was just like, yeah, I mean, I I realized I've also, this is all following a statement of me being like, I was a hip hop studio and realized I didn't like it, but there were a lot of other factors, including management and what forth. But yeah, early on, like, you want me to work on what? Yeah, great. Like, put me in. I'll I'll do it. We got jazz session? Great. You know, string session? Sure. You still seem to have that attitude to a degree, but it's very much focused. Like, so at the beginning, you were talking about how you wanted to learn things outside of outside of the norm for you so that you could spread your chances out for getting good employment with something cool. So start doing the Foley work, start doing the mixing those songs for Netflix, like all that different kind of stuff. Sounds like you were still in that mode of like taking opportunities, but rather than just being like anything that came your way, it seems to me like it was very much focused in a certain direction. So still the uh, idea of being open to what the universe gives you, but a specific portion of it, a focused portion. I don't think you would have said yes to just any death metal band that came your way. Right, right. Yeah, and, and some of that, I, I do get to operate from a point of privilege of having a little bit of a career on it. You can start being a little pickier. I mean, I hope he's not a listener, but I got sent something recently where the guy's like, oh, you know, I'm interested in getting you to maybe mix this and then co-producing it. And listening to it, I was like, eh, I don't think this is what I want to co-produce. And just being honest with the guy, like, hey, I don't think I'm a fit for this. You know, 15 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, I'll do this. Because back then, yeah, learn learn how to do everything. Like, <laughs> learn how to work through all these problems that you're going to get presented with because it's going to make life easier for you in the future. You know, you just record so many situations that, like, you, you just learn to work your way through all the that stuff. Like, you can read about problems, but some some days when you're just like, all right, this is the the cheap studio that you're working in and the drummer only has this and the guitarist only has this and the bass player only has this. And what am I going to do? Am I going to be like, well, this is not up to my standards. Like I, I quit, I'm out. Or am I going to go like, all right, I'm going to figure out the best way to make this. Like, okay, the bass player, ah, fuck, he's got dead strings and there's nothing I can do about it. 
well, how can I mic him? How can I structure the recording of this where I can make that bass work with everything else? Like, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's almost like a fundamental uh, paradigm shift with uh, how you approach the shitty sessions. If you look at them as practice for what might come down the road, um, rather than this really bad experience where nobody's prepared and uh, and you're ha- you're having to slog through a bunch of bullshit with shitty musicians instead of or a shitty studio or shitty this or shitty that, instead of looking at it like that, looking at it from the perspective of how can I make this as good as possible, given the situation um, when there's not much pressure. There's not. It's not the same kind of pressure as being under the gun at NPR with a breaking news story or a Lincoln Park budget or having an hour and a half to do a pop vocal. It's not even close to the same kind of pressure, but having figured out how to work your way through all those problems uh, over the years uh, leads you to a place where when those types of problems present themselves in a high-pressure situation, you'll just know what to do. Or you'll be able to figure it out. Yeah, because the, th- the thing is, if you have come into this with this mindset of like, oh, I'm going to hit a level with engineering producing where I, I don't have to deal with bad musicians or I don't have to deal with bullshit, like that, ne- I'm going to like warn you guys, <laughs> that shit never, never goes away. It never goes away. It just gets, <laughs> it just, it just gets, gets more where expensive. Where like, oh, yeah, I'm working on this. And this, yeah, this person's not very good. Like, eh, whatever. Not a lot of time, like, not a ton of people are going to hear this anyway. I don't have to worry about it too. Like, oh no, this is coming out and people are going to hear this and you're going to have to make it work. Like, I've been there with drummers on like a real studio, on a real session, on a real label. And like, yep, you're not, like there's not a budget to hire a, a, a studio musician or we're not doing that. And you're just like, all right. Like, you know, the thing with takes is you always try to get a better take. You might hit a point where like, you're not getting a better take. Like this guy is inconsistent enough that like it's not happening and you have to go, all right, we're going to spend five hours on this. I hope I have what I need. And we're going to move to the next one because we have a budget, we have a timeline. And you go into it with that knowledge, like, I think I can fix this because I have dealt with drummers that have no sense of time. Like <laughs> they are ahead and behind within the same beat. <laughs> you know, like I'm not pointing anyone in particular, but like that shit never goes away. You've, you will forever deal with bass players that have open strings somewhere or drummers who hit inconsistently or, you know, have some weird setup that makes miking it a, a pain in the ass or all that stuff. Like that, it just never goes away. So I kind of look at, if you're dealing with a shitty situation now and it's frustrating you, like try to find the positive, like, okay, I'm learning how to deal with this. Yeah, because as you go on, those situations continue. The only thing that changes is the pressure. It's suddenly it's, you're dealing with bad musicians in a shitty band, but there's pressure. That's not to say everybody's shitty. That's one of the things I noticed was I used to think that all the disorganization and unprofessionalism was just a local level thing. And then I passed the local level and the unprofessionalism and disorganization was even worse because there were more moving pieces. And uh, those same people who were disorganized at the local level were the people who eventually at a national, were at a national level and they didn't learn how to get organized between being local and national. So they just brought their disorganization and chaos with them. Yeah, they, they probably have management that stepped in to take care of that disorganization. Yeah, I mean, basically. One of, the, one of the things that's a valid point to learn is just because somebody's a great songwriter doesn't mean they're a great musician. Like there can be people that are very rudimentary at their instruments who write great songs and that person is of equal importance. Like Lars Ulrich is a perfect example of this. Metallica would be fucking terrible without Lars. We all know Lars is not a good drummer. But 
he's the dude that helps James arrange the song. Like that, he's important. And you're not going to make a Metallica record without Lars. Not that we're all, <laughs> I hope this isn't uh, preventing me from ever making a Metallica <laughs> record, but um, because guys, I love you. But Lars is important. Like there's- Crucial even. You just, like you, you kind of learn that. Yeah, he he's vital. I mean, he, he kind of was that band. It's like, take how great a rhythm guitarist James Hetfield is, and then maybe Lars is not the best drummer, but they made, I think, inarguably some of the greatest metal songs of all time. Like, so that's just a, a like a band that sold over 100 million records, I'm sure. Like, but he's in that band, and it's never gotten better. Like, it's... So I really like your attitude. I really, really like your attitude because one thing I have noticed is when people get frustrated because they don't have a gig or someone else got a gig or some other band got signed, you know, those kinds of the envy kind of feelings, the jealousy feelings um, that are, you know, just a part of life, but uh, seems like they get amplified in creative fields because creative people create things and they create more drama. Along with all the art they're creating, they also create drama because that's what they do. They create. So, I think that when people see somebody else getting something that they wish they had, a lot of times their first inclination is to justify to themselves, to make themselves feel better about it. They'll say, oh, that person's not as good. They must have, they must have like known somebody or they got lucky or must, have, must have polish out those knee pads, like that kind of stuff. Instead of wondering to yourself, well, the person that gave them the deal or hired them isn't fucking around. I wanted that gig too. So what? Between them hiring my competition versus me, like they became a different person with like different standards. And no, there's a reason for why they hired your competition. I actually hit a point where I was like, oh man, the, the people that were becoming my competition on things, like I'm so flattered that this is my competition. Yeah. That Zach Sabbath record that came out, uh, Vertigo, where they did the whole Black Sabbath record, I did a bunch of the engineering on that. And then I just saw recently, Jay Rustin posting pictures of working with Zach Sabbath on whatever they're doing. And, you know, part of you is just like, oh man, I wish I was doing that. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to hear what Jay does with this. Or And I, and I can think of multiple examples where this happens. Actually, I had one, there was an artist I was working with that I was supposed to be doing the mixes and all of a sudden I wasn't hearing from him. And then, um, do you know Chris Collier? I think he's a... I know him, yeah. He's on the Nail the Mix stuff. So I'm, I'm, friend, I'm friends with Chris. Chris posted like uh, an Instagram story. He's like, oh, busy week this week. And he had like a marker board with his mixes. And one of them was the artist in the song I was supposed to be mixing. So I just hit him up. I was like, hey, are you mixing that? And he was like, yeah. He's like, your tones sound great, by the way. I was like, thanks. Hey, I'm not saying this to weird you out, but did he mention anything about me mixing it? Because last I heard, he was sending me that. <laughs> Chris was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't like swipe a gig from you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm I, like, I'm not, I'm not mad. Like, I'm not mad at all. Like you're a great engineer. Like I'm glad, I'm glad that you're getting work. And it was kind of this weird thing because I think Chris felt really guilty about it. And I was like, I mean, it's a sketchy move, but it's not a move on his part. So there's like, there's two reactions. One, that just, just means he's a good guy. That, I mean, that's a little different, but yeah. Like, you know, Jay doing that, or I did a Cynic record and then the next Cynic record I was supposed to do and Sean tore his uh, Achilles heel like two weeks before we were supposed to do it. So it got postponed. And then they ended up getting this guy, Jason Donahue to do the record. Well, Jason and I are friends. And Jason eventually told me he was doing it, but he felt weird about it. And I always, he's like, oh, because I know you did the last one. And I was like, I mean, it's not that you're not bummed. Like I was bummed I wasn't doing, who wouldn't want to work with Cynic? I was bummed that I wasn't getting to do it. But at the same time, like I'm excited that my friend is doing it. And I know he's a great engineer. Like there's there's just kind of like, you kind of you kind of have to have that mindset and roll with like not taking things, or not always taking things personally as well. Like, you know, I, I talked about, there was a band called Ages that I really liked, um, 
And I'd gotten hit up about doing a song with them while I was doing Lincoln and I couldn't do it because I was doing Lincoln. And then, um, so after Lincoln got done, I kind of hit him up. I was like, hey, if you guys have any songs, I'd love to. And they're like, oh, well, we're, we're kind of talking to Joe Barisi about doing an EP. And I was like, yeah, awesome. Cool. Like, well, fuck yeah, I would take, I would take Joe Barisi. <laughs> have fun. Um, and then fortunately for me, he was doing, he was doing tools. So they called me back. But um, for me, that was one of those like, oh, holy shit. Like, am I competing with Joe Barisi for a gig? Or like, yeah, there was a helmet thing that came up that I was kind of up for. And they ended up going with Jay Baumgartner and, it was like, oh, I could get bummed that I don't have this or I could be really flattered that like I was I was being legitimately considered competition under the guy that I studied with. Like, don't get me wrong. I have not always had this good a mindset about it. Therapy has helped. But because I'm a very hyper, like self-critical person and I was that person like, oh, I didn't get that. Like, fuck, do I suck at my job? Well, it's better to think, why do I suck at my job than to think that person sucks at their job. They don't deserve the gig. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's that too. Better to be like, <laughs> what is it about me that didn't get me the job? I think that's better than fuck them. They don't deserve the job. Yeah, because they got it for some reason. Or being like, what is it about them that got them this? Yeah. The thing is, when you start asking that, sometimes you realize the scheduling just didn't work out. It was nothing personal. Yeah, it's also a creative field. Like people sometimes just, I know if I were in a band, want I probably something wouldn't, want else. Work, I wouldn't want to work with the same producer every time. Like if I was given an opportunity, like yeah. look at a band, like every time I die, I think like every one of their records is a different producer. Like why wouldn't it be? And But then there are those other bands that are always going to go back to the same producer because that, that's how it works for them. Yeah, producers shouldn't take that shit personally, though I, I understand like losing a gig or not getting a gig you thought you had or whatever, it stings a little, but at the same time, being able to have a good attitude is pretty crucial, I think, because you kind of explain why it's so important when you're giving the Joe Barisi story. You being cool about it has a lot to do with them coming back to you. If you were a dick about that, they wouldn't have come back to you. Guaranteed. If they had told you they're talking to Joe Barisi and you had uh, reacted like a baby, like some people <laughs> do, I doubt that when he got busy with Tool, they would have come to you. There's a whole mindset that comes with freelancing. And it's, this is stuff I wish I'd realized five years before I did. Because I can't, I can't profess to have always been this enlightened about it. Like freelancing was very stressful for me, the instability of it for a long time. And it's, it's something I kind of realized later. And it, and, it, and it made things better. Figuring this stuff out, like I started... It almost felt like, I don't know, it just shifts your mindset from like this, uh, fuck, I got to take all this crappy stuff to just make ends meet to being, just realizing like, maybe focus more on like when you get to do something really awesome. Like, yeah, maybe you, you will spend two months working on stuff that's like unremarkable and you're not happy with it. But then something comes along and instead of being like, oh, why can't it be like this all the time? Just get it, get excited about that. Get excited that, you know, I, I literally took it as a sign like, oh shit, I'm competing with Joe Barisi and Jay Baumgartner for gigs. Like, okay, I, my career is on the up and up. Maybe, maybe I didn't get them and maybe it does mean I don't have some work, but it also means like, shit, I'm being considered like a legitimate, not that I didn't think I was legitimate, but like, I don't know, like it just, it just makes you feel like you're more legitimate. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's one thing I try to tell myself and it works usually, which is why I've gotten good at being cool with opportunities evaporating is the idea that this is even in conversation means that something else like it is going to come around. It always does. So just the fact that conversations at this level are happening is what matters, more so than this one actual gig taking place because you aren't made or broken off of one gig. It's a cumulative thing. And whatever momentum got you to the point of being considered for that gig, that momentum still exists. 
It's like you said the Joe Brisi thing by, by going like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear it versus like, fuck you guys. I don't want to work with you anyway. Like there's no positive side to that. And if you feel that way and you need to get it out, great. Just don't do it at the clients for God's sake. Yeah, that's what therapy's for. <laughs> exactly. Or uh, going, to the, going to the gym or something. Something like that. When we're allowed to do that again. Yeah, one day in 2022. Josh, it's been awesome talking to you. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been uh, it's been a while, so it's really nice to be back and always good to talk to you. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVYURM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.